Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm gonna have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So I'm really excited today. First of all, another podcast live, live version of the podcast in person. And so many times, Tony, when you and I are talking about something, we have to give the disclosure we are not pastors. Yes, we're not pastors. <laughs> we're definitely not pastors. And the beauty of today is we are joined by my father, not in the Catholic sense, but my actual <laughs> my actual earthly father, the Reverend Dr. Kevin Schwamm, who is a pastor. He's actually my pastor. And he's my first pastor. Yes. So thanks, Dad, for coming on the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be on it and really appreciate coming after the punk rocker and then <laughs> the uh, stories that my wife told on air. <laughs> Yeah, if you haven't heard those two, you need to go back and listen to them because they're fantastic. So we're excited to have him on today to talk about all kinds of things, but especially give the pastoral perspective, which we can never really give. And I think is just a wonderful compliment. So especially since we are in your your study, so we're surrounded by all these good reform books. It, so if it sounds like this podcast is more insightful and more glorious, it's because of two things. One, it's my father. And two, it's because like we're in this great room. Yes, I'm definitely coveting this library, and yeah. I, co- I covet it every time I come over here. It's wall-to-wall books. Yes. They are really surrounded like by a cloud of witnesses. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. So as we usually do, I'm going to start off by reading um, a little bit of scripture to just kind of frame our discussion, and we're going to talk a little bit about pastoral theology and kind of what, you know, what what the role and task of a pastor is and kind of like where things are now. And we're just going to pick dad's brain a little bit too and, and see what kind of wisdom he has for us today. So the first uh, thing I want to read is out of first Timothy uh, chapter three. There's a real similar passage in Titus. Um, and Paul is writing to um, kind of his successor in Ephesus to write and say, um, this is what you should look for when you're appointing a pastor or an overseer. And it says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by the outsider, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then uh, just reading out of Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and starting in uh, verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host captive and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, and the passage goes on. Uh, it's one of Paul's very many long run on sentences. But Paul in Ephesians is basically saying that the, the pastor that uh, you have in your congregation is a gift from the Lord. So he could have left the church uh, with no leadership apart from um, the scriptures and sort of left us to ourselves. But instead, he saw fit to bless the church with um, overseers and shepherds to kind of guide us and teach us. And then uh, in First Timothy, he's kind of explaining to Timothy what 
that person should look like. Um, and it's it's important to note that most of those are character traits, not necessarily skills. Um, there are a few skill things in there, but it's mostly about what the character of a pastor um, should look like. So what do you think about, maybe this is a big question to start off with, but I'm, I'm curious to have, what are kind of your thoughts on the, the current state of the church and its leadership and pastoral ministry? Sure. I think overall, I feel both encouraged by recent things as well as very concerned and troubled uh, about the state of, of pastoral ministry today. Um, and kind of like the, the description that was read there from Tony, it, it reminds me the emphasis in Scripture is on character, whereas today it often seems the emphasis is more on skill and marketing uh, and organization. Uh, and so I would say, you know, being at a point in my life where I'm 59, I realize our viewers can't see me. I do look a lot like Brad Pitt. Uh, <laughs> but There'll be a picture in the show notes, by the way. 59 and, and being in ministry now over 30 years, 25 at the same church. Uh, I just noticed that I'm kind of in that category when I started where you'd look at those who'd been there a long time and like, wow, they're really seasoned. We should mm. We should listen to them. Um, and so I think the uh, encouraging part of pastoral ministry is there are some great young pastors coming along uh, using technology wisely, uh, you know, presenting uh, biblical teaching in a, a creative way and yet grounded to the foundation of uh, the creeds and confessions. Um, so that's encouraging to say, uh, you know, new writers like Kevin DeYoung and others uh, uh, who are coming along. Uh, at the same time, I think, you know, recent pastoral scandals and other things like that remind us uh, that I think for many we've lost the sense of what is a, a calling uh, to be a pastor. Uh, and that it's, uh, you know, certainly I loved what one of the comments Spurgeon would lecture on with his students is if, if you can possibly do anything else uh, other than being a pastor, then that's what you should pursue. Uh, and his intent where, is that you would be very clear on what it means to be called uh, to the position of, of a shepherd over a flock. So what does it mean to be called, in your opinion, then? If, you, if somebody, a younger person, was trying to weigh out whether or not they should do vocational ministry in the strictest sense and the kind of the narrowest definition. Yeah. What are the kind of things you would tell them? Well, this is how you know that your, your calling is being placed on your life. That's a great question, Jess, and I'm sure it comes to the parents who raised you. Uh, but, but I would say, and I, and I do believe that the passage in Ephesians 4 is, is putting pastor and teacher as one gift, kind of a hyphen there. Uh, and so I think there are those that have the gift of teaching who maybe would serve better in academic settings and mm. seminaries. Uh, the, the pastor teacher comes in with, I think, a real heart for those God has placed under your care. Uh, and so there must be a sense of uh, both great compassion and mercy uh, mixed with certainly un unwavering commitment to Scripture. Uh, so I think those who are wondering, are they called to ministry, would just be weighing, weighing that factor. Do you feel called uh, to serve God through the local church uh, and all that that would entail? Yeah, it makes me think kind of of, um, of Calvin, who, you know, he stops in Geneva on the way to kind of this place, this isolated place he wants to go and study. You know, he's fleeing from persecution in France. And he stops in Geneva. And was it Farrell, Farrell, whatever his name mm -hmm. is, kind of says, like, you're called to be a pastor here. And he's like, no, no, I just want to go study. Mm -hmm. And there are so many um, guys that I interact with who are moving towards pastoral ministry, but they have that perspective that, like, oh, I just can't wait until, you know, I can get paid to study for, like, 30 hours a week. And then, like, I'll spend, like, you know, like four or five hours on sermon prep and I'll preach and maybe I'll, like, make some phone calls. And it's like, you have no idea... I and mean, that's one of the things that I've really learned being in this church and, and being more um, involved in the ministry of the church and, you know, intimately involved in this family and seeing your study habits and things like that is how much study goes into it, but how much that's not the focus of the ministry. Like that's just a task that has to be done. And, and most, most pastors love, love to study, but that's just part of preparing to do ministry. The study is not necessarily ministry. And I think a lot of people just get that flipped around. Um, I, I run into that a lot when I talk to people. And, and I think and this is, I have no basis for this other than kind of maybe what I've seen or heard. 
the thinking being that it's great to study God's Word, but a call to ministry is studying it for a different reason than for just personal enrichment or insight into things so one can sound theological or impressive. Um, so uh, that that aspect of pastoral ministry, I, I think, is, is in need of great reinforcement. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why reading some more of the classics, autobiographies of guys like Whitfield, um, you know, Spurgeon and others who had this intimate call to the ministry, uh, and it's very evident in how they related to their flock. Um, something I, I think it was, uh, I want to say Eric Alexander, but I'm not sure if it was him, uh, but mentioned that it's very important for a pastor to always preach to the congregation that he has, not the congregation that he wish he had. Uh, and I think that's an important frame of mind that every pastor needs to, to put into their thinking. Yeah. So what are some things that you think it's helpful for people to understand about the, the role of pastor? Because certainly growing up in our family, mm-hmm. I always had this sense that the people speak about their vocations as a job in which they can sometimes separate from other activities of life. And for me, I always understood the pastor pastor to be a, a complete office, that it was... A, a style of life, a true investment. So I'm curious, like, are there things that, like, you think of when you we speak about being a pastor that people you wish people understood better about, like, what, what it entails or the responsibilities or misconceptions maybe people have? Oh, certainly. And a part of the answer to that would be, I think it is the job of every pastor, leadership board to be educated to help teach the people. Uh, what's involved in a pastor's life and ministry. Um, but, but with that, I was thinking of something in John Stott's book, Between Two Worlds, where he talks about ministry. Uh, it kind of typically says that the minister is often viewed as being incomprehensible on Sunday and invisible all week. Uh, <laughs> and that's not what we want. We want a pastor who certainly can be accessible. Uh, doesn't mean he should be at your beck and command if you need something and it's not necessarily a priority at that point. Um, But I think we need to see our pastors both in the pulpit and outside of the pulpit in different ways in our community. Uh, And I think helping people in a congregation or church to understand the pastor does need to develop himself uh, intellectually, theologically, to give time to serious study. Uh, I think one of the ways a church can convey that is by giving a book allowance. You know, that's you making an investment saying we realize these are the tools of the trade that that you need. Um, Certainly in, in our case, our church has been very gracious in terms of vacation time. Uh, that would be another way of saying we realize how demanding uh, a pastoral ministry can be. So we do want to give you and your family opportunity to to recharge. And, and certainly with that as a church to then respect that vacation time. Uh, granted, there will be times and there have been even for me where I've been called on vacation because of an emergency. Uh, and we understand that. But I think for a congregation to learn uh, there are some things that can wait or that that's an opportunity for your elders, deacons, whatever, to step forward and assume those tasks in a pastor's absence. Yeah, so maybe um, maybe it'd be helpful. We've kind of referenced it a couple times, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your congregation, just like how big it is, the sort of the culture that we're in. Because I think one thing that people also don't realize is that even though you know we're one body of Christ, each local congregation is very different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've been here for almost 30 years now, right? So, yes, yeah. so you know, we're talking about a pastor who's been serving the same congregation, right. and the same community for longer than, you know, a lot of our listeners have been alive. Yeah, so, roots. yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your congregation and maybe how it's changed over the years and kind of like how that's affected and how your ministry's developed through that. Sure. I'd love to. Uh, so, so overall, as, as was mentioned, I've been at my present church a number of years. And prior to that, I was at a couple different sized churches. Uh, but this church has always been a small church. Uh, And I think one of the things I've learned is certainly not to be content with the size or put the emphasis on numbers, uh, but it's the key is is teaching uh, not only our people to be faithful, but as a a pastor to, that's the model we're setting for our people. Uh, And so evangelistically speaking, our church has Uh, (laughs) 8,000. Realistically, realistically, it's about a church of 15. 
very committed, a very loyal church, uh, but we've gone through different struggles. Uh, we're in somewhat of a small town, uh, and so there's been at times maybe church discipline matters that you know we've had to deal with that have caused the loss of a family. Uh, there's also been certainly the, the economy is a factor in our area. It's not does not really offer a lot of things to hold people to the community. Uh, and so those are some of the challenges that myself and, and many pastors in similar situations, uh, I think, find themselves facing. Uh, but I think with our size, one of the advantages is it's created an environment where everyone sees they have to be involved. Mm -hmm. uh, and as well, it creates an environment where uh, people have plenty of opportunity to care for each other. Uh, and so it's not just left to necessarily a board picking up that slack or uh, not just looking at maybe throwing finances at a problem because, you know, that would take care of it or relieve us of it. Uh, but it's something we have to work on in-house. Uh, and so over the years, in, in spite of those different challenges we face, I mean, I, I can honestly say we've seen a greater sense of unity develop, uh, certainly a real concern for each other and within uh, more so, especially I would say the last five years, uh, a greater understanding of the importance of, of outreach uh, and looking for creative ways and, and trying different ways. Sometimes they're successful, uh, sometimes they may not be. Uh, but pursuing those with the intent of, of modeling before our people, uh, the importance is faithfulness to God. Yeah, that's great. And I know like I've, you know, I've been a regular attender um, for over a year now since Ashley and I moved up here. And then for like nine months when we were living up here before. And I've seen, you know, I've seen that same kind of growth in my life is that, you know, as you get, you get kind of embedded in this local church that's small you know, how many of our how many of our listeners, how many people out there can say that they know the names of every single person in their church? Mm -hmm. Like that's a that's a pretty unique mm -hmm. thing, I think, at least in my church experience. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, even some of the other um, small churches by kind of average standards in the area are much bigger than us. And even they probably wouldn't be able to say they know everybody. So I've really appreciated being able to just really get to know people. And really, you know, when something bad happens in our congregation, there's a real sense of loss. Um that everybody feels. Mm -hmm. And I think that really shows how the body of Christ is supposed to work. You know, when someone in the body is hurting, we're all supposed to hurt with them. Right. You know, that's just scriptural. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of churches that are bigger, you can have someone die and half the congregation doesn't even notice. Um, and, and that's and really I, bad. Yeah. And I think with that, just the realization that, you know, the key for any church is that faithfulness to God, uh, teaching his word, giving the whole counsel of God, um, because we're certainly not out to, to bash churches that are bigger or churches that are smaller. Uh, but to realize, I think, for each church, there, there is a unique personality and calling. And, and I am convinced that there, there are those that are called to medium-sized churches, larger churches as pastors, uh, and that's their fit, and that's what is plays to their strengths. There are those that clearly are called to, to smaller-type church ministries for some of the reasons that, that we've just alluded to. Yeah. One of the other things that, I, that you do that I think is also really awesome is beside being a pastor, if that weren't enough, you also teach Bible full-time mm -hmm. at a private school. And uh, that, that has like its unique challenges, but also like, it sounds like it's quite an adventure. So I'm curious if you would talk a little bit about what you do there and how that also shapes like your whole pastoral ministry. Because you're, you're teaching from the pulpit on Sunday morning, but you're also teaching yeah. in the classroom everything from Romans to Jonah, like all over the place, right? So yes, and that, that is true. And that's been pretty consistent throughout my ministry, given the fact that I'm at smaller churches uh, that have always worked outside the church as well, sometimes in the community. Uh, in this case, I'm at a Christian school as a director of spiritual formation. Uh, so I oversee the chapel program, the selection of speakers, uh, discipleship, sort of studies we do in school with with kids and i think the advantage is a, a manifold in a couple ways one is it, it constantly has me in the word so there are certainly aspects of even if i'm teaching something different in say bible 10 on the minor prophets where that might impact or affect illustrations i might draw from when i'm preparing or discussing different issues with people in my congregation uh, I think the other advantage with 
teaching outside and teaching Bible in particular to teenagers is uh, they are very transparent. Uh, <laughs> so you can see right away if they don't believe what you're saying or uh, they're just not interested in what you're saying. So in, in that way, I think it really keeps me sharper uh, because I have to try to be creative. and But yet at the same time, I'm, I'm fully convinced that we don't we don't have to try to make God's word relevant. It, yeah, it is yeah. relevant. Yeah. Uh, and so certainly the, the aspect of the teaching at the school has been an additional blessing at times because of fruit coming out of that. Uh, I think, again, the factor of longevity where uh, you're seeing kids who graduate and are keeping in touch or sharing with you uh, where they are in their growth with Christ or, or in their struggles. Uh, so I think that's a real blessing and benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's that, again, that's like a real pastoral ministry. It's that oh, definitely so. Yeah, concern for the whole person, not just to know a subject so you might communicate to somebody else, but you you want to communicate it because you're you're truly invested. I have right. this this memory of being. I think it was when I was like in in college at some point, but we, I was home and I was sitting at your desk, the big desk, because I needed to get, get on the computer real quick. And, you know, it's usually covered as the desk is now with like all, all kinds of papers, all kinds of books. It was like midweek. So you're preparing for a variety of things. And for whatever reason, there was this kind of book laid open, large book. And there was like a little passage kind of poking out among all the papers, something about Noah. And so I remember I just read it and I was like, man, that is deep. Like it was some observation about God remembering Noah and then God remembered Noah. And I was just meditating on it. And I was like, that really hits me. What is this book? And I flip it over. And it's like the third grade Sunday school <laughs> for, for that okay, week. But know. but just to show like the, the rich yeah. variety of stuff to look at and how God uses all of that as we're mm-hmm. teaching, as we're communicating. We may think we've graduated onto bigger ideas, but that that's never really true. Like you don't graduate from the gospel, Correct. obviously. It is good. I mean, I've had students say to me, um, you know, taking your classes in Bible and, and they are hard in the sense I do expect students to study. Uh, but but they've said it really has prepared them as they've gone off to Christian schools. They've done so much better, sometimes even in freshman Bible. Uh, they find it's easier than my class. And then I want to say to them, maybe you better pick a car to college. Uh, but I can remember saying to one of my seniors at graduation, because we do this thing where we do give accolades, uh, and this kid was a very strong Calvinist, and he would often get into discussions on that uh, in class. Uh, but I can remember saying to him, you know, you're, you're standing here now, uh, you're saved by grace, but you're graduating by works. <laughs> Well, that, so that's interesting because we've talked about this before. Is you one of the books you go through? Is you have like an actual course on Romans, right? Mm-hmm. Is that something Correct. that you cover right, for students? juniors? So how do how do you find students interacting on you know some of the doctrines of grace? I know that's something that you guys do cover. Yeah, there there's a wide range, and I think one of the things that's probably hard to develop among the students because of their maturity and age is is how do you disagree with someone without attacking the person and how do you present your case and and show the support for it biblically Uh, and so obviously in Romans if we're talking about salvation and Calvinism versus Arminianism uh, is I I really want to present students with well here's the reason why Arminians hold this position how are they supporting that here's where Calvinists are coming from Uh, and I certainly am always open to share my view Uh, Sometimes because they're students right away, they want to cut through all that and just say, well, what do you believe? Uh, Because I think they want to hope (laughs) that's the the answer. answer. Um, And so I encourage and hold that off often and say, well, I'll tell you, but first let's examine it. Uh, So there's lots of relevant issues that come up and, and, you know, looking at the curriculum and I developed the whole curriculum, so I don't use uh, anything uh, canned. Uh, I can still remember a time going to a, Uh, Christian school conference where I was teaching minor prophets and they had a gentleman there who was going to be giving a lecture on Daniel. And I thought, well, that would be good because that's what I'm teaching and let me go hear that lecture. Uh, And I noticed as he was giving the lecture, all he kept talking about was the dispensational perspective. Uh, And it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but there is the covenant perspective as well. 
uh, and he asked for questions afterwards, and I, I simply said, you know, do you also present the, the covenant understanding of the book? Uh, and I will never forget his reply to me was, uh, that would be too confusing to the students to give them more than they really need to know. Wow. Uh, and I thought, wow, I would never want to be classified as teacher who did that. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that's... that's um there's a couple things you said that strike me as really important for kind of our main demographic that listens to this is that, you know, you're teaching high school students how to disagree yes. in an agreeable fashion. Right. And I think so often we've talked about it before in kind of the younger reformed generation, uh, that is just a skill that is missing. And I'm never, I'm not perfect at it. I have my fair share of, you know, headbutting incidents online, but, um, you know, I think that's really important. And then also fairly evaluating you know, all sides of a discussion, because I think, you know, we, we learn something and we go into it and we learn it and we get in this like cage and we're like, I'm right. Everyone else has always been wrong. Mm -hmm. And we, we forget that we were wrong at one point. And so we have to acknowledge that we could have been wrong. We were wrong. We could still be wrong. And so we have to give everything a fair shake. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do you balance that with, um, being careful not to present something that you think is false? Cause obviously, you know, you're, you're trying to present something and, you know, you hold a view, but how do you, do you kind of play devil's advocate or do you just say like, this is what one side argues, this is what another side argues? Do you push back against them? Um, how do you handle that? Right. It would depend on the nature of the discussion and probably the student. There are times that I will play devil's advocate. Uh, there are other times I'll, I'll try to say if another student speaks up, but maybe they're not even knowledgeable on how to defend that. I'll try to say, well, here's maybe where they're drawing that from. Okay. Uh, and then certainly there are at times some instances where you could have some very strong denominational differences right. uh, where I will just say, you know what, our, our bottom line here is we always want to go back to the scriptures uh, and sort of leaving that in a classroom context sometimes uh, because you're balancing, you know, this is their church, this is their church tradition where right. they're coming from. Um, so I just want to say them go, keep going back to the scriptures. Uh, my heart's desire would be if you go back to the scriptures enough, uh, you'll see them right. I mean, I, no, but but uh, that that would be the thing I want to leave them always with. Right. Okay. That's fantastic. And you get like a broad mix of students, right? I mean, across like, yes. denominations. Now, the other thing that is interesting is I have the privilege of not just, you know, working with my congregation, which is an, an older congregation. Then I have the teenage population that I work with all week. And they also preach, in addition to my church on Sundays, to a an international college generation. Uh, so that also helps me. I mean, I, I kind of see all different spectrums and, and each of them I almost view as three different congregations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so certainly it's challenging when you get to developing messages or, or studies like that that you want to take each in because their needs are very different and their comprehension of certain things is different in trying to help all of them have a, a systematic theology. Yeah. So one of the things I've wanted to ask you about was... Um, you know, something that probably Tony and I are more comfortable with because we've kind of grown up in this kind of disgeneration, but is not just in the in reform circles, but also where this kind of cult of personality sometimes that happens around pastors or leaders. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's not to a detrimental level, but it's because of technology and the pervasiveness mm -hmm. and the ability to broadcast. You know, we have these leaders that become in some ways larger than life. And I'm guessing that's something that, I mean, you've seen kind of develop over time. I'm curious if you have kind of any thoughts on on that in particular? Yes, um, I can see in some ways, I think it can be facilitated today because of the internet, because of the wide span of podcasts, everything like that. But, but yet, thinking back, you know, people said the same thing about Spurgeon, um, you know, Whitfield, that these guys are just drawing people because of their personalities, uh, and they'll just kind of burn up and, you know, we'll forget about them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that would be the real test. If it's just a personality, then the, the results won't be long lasting. Um, I don't know if it was uh, someone recently I was reading made this comment, and I think it fits into the, the celebrity concept that even affects Christianity at times, is, is that what we win them with is what we will win them to. Mm -hmm. And so if we win them to a personality, 
then when that personality moves on, then we'll, you'll move on with that personality. Uh, or you'll have your favorite theologian and you just follow them no matter where they go. Uh, and so that, that is a danger. I don't think it's so much a new danger. I think it has grown probably only because of the availability of, of technology that puts us out there right. so much. Yeah, and, and to kind of piggyback off that, not only what you win them with, you win them too, but that's what you have to keep them with too. Mm-hmm. So right. I think we see like right. the mega churches that are all about programming, which there's nothing wrong with programming. Like it's totally fine to have a children's ministry, at least in my opinion, it's totally fine to offer a VBS or, you know, we do these various outreaches. But um, one thing that, you know, I think we've, we've really uh, strived for, and I think done a good job at, um, at our church is these programs don't replace the normal ministry of the church, mm-hmm. right? Our, our Halloween outreach, our Christmas outreach. So those things are not, um, they're not replacements for the gospel. They're not replacements for evangelism. Right. There's something right. we offer to the community just because we love our community. Um, and, you know, we get a, we usually get a, a family or two that visits after those things, but, um, you know, it hasn't been a huge draw to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess maybe like, what do you think about some of these um, really like more program driven churches? You know, you think of like Saddleback and Willow Creek and sort of the, the church growth movement kinds of stuff. Um, I think something our, our listeners, the age group that we draw miss out on is that we've lived such relatively short lives that we haven't seen kind of the rise and fall of some of these things. Saddleback became big, you know, and most of us were like in our, our teens and twenties and it's still kind of a big deal. Um, but when you get to, to speak to somebody who's, um, seen more of history than we have, you see kind of the, the way that those things come and go. So what what are your thoughts kind of on, on those aspects of ministry? Well, I appreciate you, Tony, emphasizing I've seen a lot of history. Um, but but I would agree. I think that's part of the problem in a postmodern world. There is no true appreciation for history. Everything is what matters now. Right. And, and so with that, then we don't understand what can we learn from even Christian history about people who at times have risen to high positions because of personality, but then their work has has not had long-lasting fruit. And even with Saddleback, I mean, the, a couple of years back, their study that showed they, they had fallen short in discipling people. Yeah. Uh, they'd seen numbers go sky high, but then what really happened to these people? Um, and so I think that goes back to, especially for pastors, and I would even push that back farther, seminaries and, and every educational institute wrestles with how do we fit so much into a limited curriculum but, but as teaching those being trained for ministry, what, what are you building your definition of success on? You know, and if it's on programs, then it's, it's going to be program driven. And, and if you can have a program that outmatches another church, then you'll get more people than that church. Mm-hmm. But I think the fallacy in that is there'll always be a better music program and mm-hmm. there'll always be a better youth group. And probably there'll always be another speaker who's more engaging than the one you have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think facing that reality and then probably as those who are teaching, whether it be on whatever level, uh, helping to, to show people uh, the wealth of understanding Christian history uh, and you know how we don't stand alone, but we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Uh, not to idolize them or worship them in any way. So I think it's it's very good if you're talking about the Reformation. I mean, talk about, you know, Luther as a person, talk about Calvin as a person. You know, they were not perfect saints in the sense of sinless. Right. Uh, but yet we can learn so much from from how they taught and the, the purpose they saw in the work of the church. Yeah. I like what you said about that not being, like the cult of personality not being a new thing. Because I hadn't thought about that. So it's mm-hmm. kind of humorous for me to think like people were like, yeah, Whitfield, people just like him because he can talk loud. He's, <laughs> that's well, like think, yeah, they, they attributed his theatrics, how expressionful he was, uh, that that was the draw. Uh, I mean, certainly I've, I've kind of referenced already, but I'm a, basically a Spurgeonite. Um, that, you know, people looked at him and thought he was just a, uh, a phenom here. He's a 16, 17 year old kid that can preach amazingly. And, and even Spurgeon in his writings early on said he, he realized he had to guard himself against pride. Mm. 
uh, because of just how quickly he saw his congregation grow. Yeah. Uh, and we forget, you know, when that was happening, uh, he's, he's like 17, 18, at 19, he's called to like the, the most influential church in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible you know, to think about. Be, yeah. Yeah, and the same kind of stuff was happening, I mean, even with Luther and Calvin. Um, you know, there's the famous incident with um, Servetus in Geneva. And what most people don't realize is that the reason that Servetus was in Geneva is because he was desperate to hear Calvin preach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a bad mistake to make, I guess. <laughs> um, but Luther, Carl Truman talks about how Luther was kind of like the first rock star. Not in like the sense that he, I mean, he was musical, but um, more in the sense that like his people would like put his posters up. They would like make posters of Luther and put them up in their house, kind of like we put posters of celebrities on our walls and stuff. And, you know, you can even go further back than that. And, you know, Augustine traveled um, thousands of miles to see Ambrose preach. Um, Mm -hmm. So this you're right. This this kind of personality driven thing isn't exclusive to Christianity and it's not exclusive to our generation. Um, but it is so much easier. You know, I can I can pick up a Matt Chandler sermon anytime right. I want or a John Piper sermon or a John MacArthur sermon or any number of people. Or your sermons for right. that matter. Yeah, I mean, and we'll, we'll put a link in there yeah. because I think I think one of the things that people miss um, when they're podcasting is they want to listen to the really famous pastors. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I've started doing that I've really um, appreciated is I've started finding the podcast for local pastors and listening to them yeah. because mm-hmm. the pastor in the next town over probably has something more applicable to say to my life than Matt Chandler in, you know, in um, Dallas, Fort Worth or John MacArthur, in, you know, where he is or John Piper in Minneapolis or whoever it happens to be. Well, I believe it was, I think D.A. Carson made this comment and I don't know if I would say it exactly what he did, but he was dealing with this fact that some people, you know, were choosing to listen instead of to their local pastor, some person online that has a congregation of thousands. Uh, and he was talking to someone, a church person who asked him about that. And he was like, well, that's fine if you want to do that. But the next time you have a funeral, go ask that pastor to conduct yeah, it. Right. And he was kind of hitting on that fact that you, you know, there's always going to be others you can listen to that probably would be more proficient because yeah. of the time they have, maybe the resources they have. Uh, but that's not the same as having someone to shepherd you. Right. Uh, and I think even though we brought up the personality cult that's a part of probably our sinful nature to, to get attached to something we can see. Uh, I think we don't want to confuse that with every pastor should speak with with bold conviction and passion. Uh, I love the story about Whitfield, who uh, Ben Franklin always made an attempt to try to go hear Whitfield speak. Uh, and Ben Franklin was, was no believer in Christ. Uh, and so Whitfield was coming to an area where Ben asked his friend, he said, will Whitfield be there? And he's like, yep. So Franklin said, I'm going to go hear him. And his friend said to him, why do you want to hear this guy? You don't even believe him. And he says, I don't believe in the gospel, but Whitfield does. Uh, And I think that's one of the things of transparency people need to hear, whether they agree or disagree with what we say from the pulpit or from uh, any position we have in teaching, that we we believe this to be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not an irrational belief. It's not some post-truth, you know, as we, we hear the word used today, uh, but it's supported um, and is verifiable. Mm. And that strikes me, you saying that in the sense that in the, certainly there must be like an, I'm not obviously trained, but there is an art to teaching and to communicating and to preaching, which can be separate things all into themselves. But thinking back about how, like you said, Whitfield was very expressive, but wasn't Edwards like he was like very monotone, right? When he would preach, his right? And uh, that though was styles. very typical, and I think sometimes we forget that was very typical of Puritan preaching. You you wanted to remove any elements that right. would wrongfully draw attention to you over the message, right? And so, so somewhere, I mean, there's a balance because. Uh, you know, preaching has been defined as the word of God through personality. So all of us have different personalities and that should show itself through our preaching, mm-hmm. but never to the point where it overrides our preaching or distracts from our preaching. Right. So we have this common thread that, that you're saying that there is conviction in how it's presented. There's conviction mm-hmm. they have in front of you, like a change believer who's proclaiming the gospel. And right. sometimes I'll take the form of, 
of being a little bit more loud. And sometimes like Edwards, it was very kind of soft and subdued, but there's always, you're always in that presence. You're receiving that same conviction that this, this is a person. Correct. Now, how how that might be communicated will vary depending on your experiences, your personality. Right. So, I mean, many who've probably gone through seminary realize there's a, a phase where uh, a lot of people almost begin to preach and sound like their favorite speaker. Right. And, and they have to learn how to, to preach with their own voice uh, in line with God's word because that is the blessing they are to whatever church God mm-hmm. has called them to. And I think that's a good reminder for both people that are thinking, I, I would like to preach, and also for the listeners, that they shouldn't be expecting that in their church they're going to hear your voice, or in mm-hmm. their church they're going to hear Matt Chandler. That's not, it sounds the way that God has intended it for it to Correct. be. Right. Yeah, and I think um, just because we have to bring in the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, I think this is the Shorter Catechism, um, question 89 says, how is the word, uh, referring to the scripture, how is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer is, the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and building them up in holiness, comfort, through faith unto salvation. And I think, um, you know, it's important for us to remember that as, as vital as it is for us to read Scripture on our own, the ability to do that is, um, is unique historically in our generation um, and like our generation historically speaking like the last 150 200 years um, but even before the Reformation most people didn't even have the Bible in their own language so um, preaching by someone who was trained and equipped to be a teacher called to be an elder um, and a pastor in the church that was the way that that God used for most of history for salvation to come to his people mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously as the, the the catechism says by their um, by the working of the spirit so maybe talk a little bit about kind of like your preaching style and I don't necessarily mean like um, what kind of sermon illustrations you you use but you know like expository preaching topical preaching um, you kind of do a, a bit of a mix maybe talk a little bit about how you decide you know what kind of sermons you're going to do and what series we're going to do I think overall probably early on in the ministry I've always done exegetical sermons but sometimes I would tend to do more topical or shorter series uh, and then I think it depends a lot on your congregation typically I do more uh, book series now they're, they're always exegetical I'll take a break from that usually try to capitalize on things like Advent or, or Easter to build a theme around that because one you may have more visitors during that time uh, and it generally is a, a good way to appeal to maybe certain questions that are out there uh, and so I try to balance you know if we've done some New Testament then I try to flip that and do some Old Testament um, you know, in our men's study, we've gone through the minor prophets because I also want to pick up areas where there tends to be gaps in our reading where we may be very familiar with certain books, but we rarely turn the pages of some other books. Uh, and I don't want one of my people to get to heaven uh, and meet Micah and say, who are you? And he says, I'm sure you read my book. And you're like, I didn't know you had a book. Um, so that's uh, obviously one of my concerns. Uh, but I, I, you know, and always looking, and I think as you plan a series, you know, God brings things into the life of your congregation that fit with that series, even though you didn't anticipate that. Yeah. Um, and, and there's always an opportunity if, something dramatic happens, whether it be in our country or maybe in your congregation, where you, you might need to drop that series for a week to address that particular need. Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was big on talking about the unction of the Spirit. Uh, and, and he was not saying, don't be prepared to preach, but, but always be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Uh, and I think in many cases, we, we tend to go to extremes on that. Either we're thinking, well, I don't need to prepare and the Spirit will just <clears throat> give me the words, or the other extreme where we so meticulously prepare every single thing that we haven't really listened and allowed the Spirit to work through what the text has meant as we've worked through it. Yeah, And that's a hard thing to do, because anytime even where I've done like minimal, it's a small amount of teaching, that balance of... Sometimes it's easy to over-prepare and to think, oh, I'm going to transcript mm-hmm. or write everything out. I have my outline. But to invest on your knees the time in prayer is is tough, I think. I mean, that's a different kind of investment that's harder to make, or at least for me, 
is just sit right. down and open the books and say, well, this is easier. And, yeah. and that'd be one reason why you get paid the big bucks. In the <laughs> but also with that, I think the more you preach, the more you realize there's always way more that you've studied that you can say. Yeah. And so that's probably for some pastors, the hardest part is whittling that down to some key thoughts or the big idea and, and realize those other things you've studied, it's not that they're not important and you may draw from those at some other point, uh, but I, I think we've all listened to speakers who have tried to say way too much yeah. Yeah. And, and we walk away saying it was just overload. I don't know which I should remember or what exactly was the right. purpose of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, how important is when you're thinking of communicating, especially in the form of a sermon, how important is the structure as you're thinking through that to helping people find something in there that they'll walk away with. So on Tuesday morning, right. there's, there's still something that they remember from that. Well, I think, and, and every pastor probably has their own little way of going about this, and I'm sure I've developed my own approach, uh, but it's always trying to, one, think about what is this text saying to me? That's very important. Uh, then weighing what I know about my congregation, thinking about what their lives are like during the week. How might this relate to where they are individually, where we are as a church. Um, I think being knowledgeable of what's going on in the world is helpful, uh, you know, to, to know major news events, to just be a good listener, you know, things you hear on the internet or conversations you sometimes overhear from other people uh, can all give you a better idea of this. This is what the world is like that we're speaking this message to. Mm-hmm. Uh, which helps you when you start to think about the Old Testament prophets. You know, as much as we talk about a redemptive historical perspective, that we, we mustn't forget that that message had to have relevance to that immediate audience in some way. Right. Uh, and I think that's always the challenge to not just want to run with the message, but to also say, well, what, what did it mean initially? What does it mean? And sometimes I ask, and sometimes I'll do this just mentally, um, just kind of as I'm finishing up a sermon, think, so what? Mm-hmm. Like, what What would my, what would I want the people to understand? Like, why did I just listen to this for a half hour or 40 minutes? Um, you know, even though it was engaging and it was priceless, um, you know, <laughs> what, what, what am I taking away right. from this? And, and I think that's, again, sometimes as you, you read and you kind of blur different what authors, different authors say, uh, but I remember reading someone who simply said, the problem with too many sermons today is they end at 11 o'clock sharp. Mm. And that was kind of what he was getting at, is there's no application to take with you and apply it during the week. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized we should have, before this episode started, we should have made a bingo card filled with like reformers, <laughs> yeah. different preachers, Puritans, and just play because you've mentioned so You'd many. have to have I Spurgeon on there like four or five times That's though. right. I also just realized I'm sitting like two feet away from a bust of Luther's head. That's yeah, actually true. from yeah, Germany. Head, yes. this, this is like a glory. We should do all our podcasts here from now yeah. on. We should, yeah. This is the ideal place. <laughs> I love this room. All these books, all this wonderful stuff, you, you dialoguing with us. And I've realized like we're, this is like way better now than crisis center. So we're, we're coming, <laughs> That's right, yes. we're coming for you, Camden BC. Yeah. Yeah. We're not listener supported though. So <laughs> if you want to support us, you can just send checks if you yeah, want. We would like to be, or books to my father. Yes. If they would just prefer to. Correct. Books. Or if you'd also be interested in heading up my fan club. <laughs> We were talking about celebrities in the Northeast. You can get in touch with them on Facebook. Yes. So I have one final question because I think this is always helpful for me to hear from from pastors and I think would help be very helpful to others. And that is, what can people in the church, the lay people, what can they do to support their pastors and to be ready on Sunday morning in particular to hear from them? Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things. Some I've mentioned, I think, is one is the people uh, being in the Word all week, uh, being familiar with what is the job of a pastor, an elder, a deacon, um, and then for them to realize if if they don't get a decent night's sleep, it's going to affect how they come to church. Uh, if they don't get up early enough and think about not just the physical part of getting ready to go out the door, uh, but even spending time 
preparing their own heart in prayer. Uh, I mean, as many churches, we have like a meditation for people to read after they settle in. Uh, but I think we quickly realize that that alone is not enough time for you to adequately prepare for worship. And, and I would say that that preparation starts, you know, on Monday. I mean, it, it begins that early. Um, so I, I think it, it's twofold. I think pastors need to do a better job of teaching their people what is it they do, what are their priorities. You know, you think in Acts where priority is prayer and the Word. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what you should hold us to. Uh, and then realize there's other needs that will come up, and that's where uh, we need to teach them, and, and not just, as Ephesians 4 said, not just dump this on them, but to train them for positions of leadership and to be there to encourage them, but also hold them accountable. Uh, And some of the other ways you mentioned, I mean, as I said, I mean, I think, uh, you know, financially, given whatever the means of a church is to make sure you're um, paying the one who teaches you uh, and recognizing their value, uh, that you're trying to do your best to give them the tools to to do their work uh, and enough vacation time where they can replenish themselves. Um, And I think also expecting them, especially if they have younger children, uh, that they're going to have kids who sometimes misbehave, who uh, do things during church that other kids do, uh, and that's that's why did, okay. Why did you look at me when you said that? <laughs> That'll be another episode. Things that my children have done during church while I'm preaching. That would be an amazing episode, yeah, actually. actually yes. We're going to come back to that another time because that would be a great episode, probably. That yeah, so... I think um, we we need to wrap up. We're in the middle of a pretty epic snowstorm, and we can hear the snowplow outside. So we have to go move all our cars and probably yeah, do, do some a, shoveling. Do a little shoveling. But um, this has been great, Dad. Um, I'll just say from kind of the congregation um, that you serve that we appreciate you so much. Um, we love you, and we grow so much from your preaching. And we, Amen. you know, I have a special perspective of seeing your study every week and how you work mm-hmm. at it. Um, but I know that you know our our congregation loves you, and we we are so thankful for you. And you know, I know Jesse um, has talked in the past about like how your ministry has shaped him. Mm-hmm. So um, keep you know fighting the good fight, and um, you know, well done. And we we just are so glad to have you. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you. It's been been great to be on, and. Hopefully next time I won't be like at the last on the guest list. Uh, but, you know, I'd be glad to come back another time. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. Thanks, Dad, for being on. And as Tony said, all I can add is you are a great pastor in the truest sense, in the holistic sense, where sometimes we think of the pastor as the guy behind the pulpit on Sunday mornings. And you are so much more than that. So I'm, I'm so thankful. Yeah. Very thankful. So thanks for joining us. We're all going to go get our tissues and wipe our eyes, and then we're going to go move our cars. Sounds so good. So we will see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,